Jason, thanks so much for making the time. I know how busy you are, but it's so nice to have you. And um, uh, I think this, your story resonated so well last time. Uh, in fact, when, when a number of folks heard you were coming back, they're like, oh, you know. Um, in fact, Eric recited some of the story. Oh, boy. Uh, so, but, um, hopefully I tell it again the hopefully same. Hopefully it's just as compelling. <laughs> hopefully it's just as compelling this time. But um, let's, let's uh, start out at the very beginning. So Sioux City. So Rapid City. Rapid City, I'm sorry. Yeah, Rapid City, South Dakota. Uh, please tell us a little bit about that. It's a thriving metropolis. <laughs> um, I was born there to my parents, David and Kathy. Uh, in 1976, that will tell you how old I am nowadays. You're still and, a baby. Um, yeah. Our and family was kind of rooted there. Um, were they from, from there? They didn't move there? Were they, were they there for work? Um, I think they were there out of necessity, but I had kind of grown up there. My, a lot of my aunts and uncles are farmers. So I have one uncle that's still a, a beef farmer. And then I, during my life, I had an uncle that was a hog farmer, another uncle that was a dairy farmer, um, and then us. Um, so th that was on my mom's side of the family. And they're still all there? That's where your roots are? Yeah, most of them are still there. And then my dad also grew up in and around that area. Um, but he was, uh, he's a fun story to tell. He was, uh, he was orphaned at the age of 14. So he was one of 11 siblings, and his mom died when he was four in childbirth, and his dad passed away when he was uh, 12, and then the 11 siblings were kind of spread out across the country, and he ended up in an orphanage and has kind of a beautiful story about kind of living on his own since he was 15 and taking life the hard way. Oh, my gosh. Um. So what was, uh, I'd almost want to spend some time on that story, but, but how did it impact your story? Um, yeah, it's a huge part of it. Um, my parents are the most loving, awesome people you'll ever meet. And uh, just big inspiration for me to watch, you know, my mm -hmm. parents go through, you know, how you transition from that kind of level of, in many ways, poverty um, he, he did live on his own since he was 15 years old. He was the only one of his 11 siblings that graduated from high school. He went on his own every day, uh, worked in the mornings beforehand, volunteered for Vietnam, came home from Vietnam and met my mom in a truck stop where she was a server. And, um, and then I, you know, this is where I get to tease them because they were married in July and my older brother was born in February. So if you do the quick math, we know that this was a shotgun wedding. And they were married, we've got some great photos of them. They were married in a, in a country Chinese food restaurant in Rapid City, South Dakota. <laughs> so the photos are amazing. Um, but they've been married now for, you know, 45, almost 50 years. And it's, it's the phenomenal like love story That's and amazing. journey how, how long did you spend in um, I lived there I moved here uh, just before I turned 11 so for the first 10, ten years, years of my life we're, we're there what are um, your memories of those 10 years um, they were all great I mean my 
my mom's side of the family is very close and we did a lot of things that most families do. We spent Christmas Eve with our cousins. We had great Thanksgivings. My mom was an exceptional cook. We, uh, we had a family tradition of homemade pizza. Ours was on Sunday, not Friday though, Drew. And uh, hot chocolate chip cookies. And you know, we did a lot of things together as a family, which was great. Um, we lived in a trailer park for almost that entire time. And um, honestly, was really fun to um, to be in that environment at that age because you really didn't know any differently. And um, I started a lawn mowing business when I lived there with my older brother. And talk about like a captive audience of people who don't really want to do physical labor in their yards and. You did this while you were under 11 years old? Oh, yeah. Wow. It was easy business. It was $6. I learned the upsell, too. It was 6 bucks to mow your lawn, 8 if you wanted us to trim it. So that extra $2 was all margin. It was like super <laughs> <laughs> And we had, you know, 10 or 12 neighbors that we, my brother and I would wake up and go crush lawns. And wealthy. We were wealthy oh, for 10-year-old yeah. kids oh, in yeah. the trailer park. It was fun. What caused the move when you were 11? So my dad, um, his company was purchased. He was a diesel mechanic, worked on big diesel trucks, and somebody bought the company and ultimately uh, downsized roles, so he lost his job. Mm. Um, tried to get back into the Army, but at that point he was a little too old, and so he applied for a job with the Federal Aviation Administration, and his options were Denver and Salt Lake, and so we moved here. and. Uh, I'm sure that was very hard for them to kind of uproot from yeah. all of their siblings and parents and come to some foreign place like this. But it must have also been hard for you at age 11. Oh, I cried. My mom teases me now how much I cried about missing my friends and my, I guess I had a girlfriend when I was 10. I thought it was the end of the world. <laughs> so anyway. And, and you moved to to Salt Lake City. We moved to Rose Park, uh, 1216 Catherine Street. All right. Um, which was just a little little tiny house in Rose Park and was really close to our schools and more importantly, close to my dad's job. Did you, did you, do you remember it as a struggle fitting in or did you come in and figure something out? No, that was a really hard really? two or three year transition. You would imagine, you know, at, at that point, Rose Park, um, you know, maybe still is, but was, I would say was not gentrified, as mm -hmm. people would call it, you know, potentially today. It was a really diverse school, and the, the circumstances were just very, very different. Um, you know, I showed up as a country kid from South Dakota, and this was a relatively metropolitan. Uh, and I had different, kind of different risks, um, and would say that it was, I've, it was the first time in my life I kind of felt unsafe when I was outside of my home. <laughs> lots of fights, lots of things stolen, lots of like picking my route home so I could get home safely, um, stuff like that, which was unique and in many ways character building. It's, it's amazing because so to you, this felt like going to the big city. Which Very, is, yeah. It's sort of strange to think of Salt Lake City as a big city back then, but those sorts of experiences you'd associate with a big metropolis. Yeah, and, and you know, that, that's my part of the journey. I think part of it was 
where where we lived and how we got to school and just kind of the things that we may or may not have seen. But most people don't even realize the level of kind of poverty and rough neighborhoods that are here in Salt Lake City. Mm. You know, they're, they're, they're more than you would imagine. And it, you know, we're not, I'm not saying I grew up in the south side of Chicago, but no. you know, well, it's still hey, scary. As Drew says, west side of Salt Lake. Sure, Sorry, Sugarhood, he calls it. That's right, Sugarhood. Yeah. Rough and tumble. <laughs> yeah, rough and tumble. Um, but, you know, I had good, I met some decent friends, and thankfully I played sports, and that was an easy way to get along. Um, but, you know, I, did anyone like middle school? <laughs> don't answer that, cool people. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> and you continued on? through high school and university here? Yeah, we made one other move, still in Rose oh. Park. Um, I went to West High School, same kind of set of circumstances, um, but loved it. And, you know, there was a, that started to become an advantage because I, you know, I played football and baseball, and a lot of our football team was made up of uh, really great players that were diverse and lived in my neighborhood. And so that was great me and I got to get to know them really well and mm -hmm. um, so I had a great high school experience I loved West High School loved that that whole scene was you great felt like you fit in it was home I and did yeah that's really cool yeah um, aside from being a an athlete and a, a jock in high school um, did you have what was your worldview about post high school at the time like what did you think you were gonna do who um, I think that I've, that's a really good question. Um, first, I, I wouldn't have considered myself a jock in high school. I played sports, but I played, there were, there were some really great players. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of, I was a shadow player, if you will. Um, I think that I had always thought that maybe I would run a division of a big company, that I you know, wanted to do something like that. I was pretty business oriented, so I was you know, in DECA and I wrote this sweet business plan for a, uh, a DJ, a mobile DJ business, and like went to state and competed with my mobile DJ pro forma. <laughs> it's kind of hilarious. But so, what motivated that? What 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 in your background was that innate in you, or did your parents? Or what what motivated you to be so business minded? Not not my parents. Um, I think my parents gave me the drive, the hard work. Mm. You know, my dad. I think based on his background, went for um, stability. Mm. So the FAA provided that. He ended up going back to school and becoming an environmental engineer and having this amazing career. And my mom ended up going back to school when I was in middle school and became an educator. Mm. So she was a teacher for 30 years. Um, but my uncles were all relatively entrepreneurial. You know, they all ran farms and or ran real estate brokerages. and were pretty successful. So I think it was in my mom's family side kind of bloodline. But it's a combination of worth, work ethic and entrepreneurship. You, you had that even as a high school student. Yeah, in high school, I, um, I worked at the airport at 4.30 in the morning. Um, you know, if you were going to drive a car, I had to pay for it. So I went to school for, to work at 4.30 and then I would work for three hours or so and go to school and then I would play football after school and then I would go home and do my homework and wow. you know fit in social stuff when I could and that was kind of the rotation several days a week amazing 
not many kids, uh, I think, would associate with that. That's amazing. Um, I wouldn't recommend it if you don't have to do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So <clears throat> it's time to graduate. What is on your mind? College, going somewhere else? Funny family dynamics at that age. Um, my older brother is uh, much more academically forward than myself. He's always been extremely smart. And um, he took a f he, he's taken that for granted. I used mm. to tease him all the time. I would work so hard at school and he was a breeze. But he took two years off. And so the same year I was graduating high school, he was leaving. He had been accepted to the Air Force Academy. So if you could imagine complete opposites, Mark was accepted to the Air Force Academy and I wanted to go to the University of Utah instead of Salt Lake Community College. So my dad thought that um, I was an elitist because I, I, I was too good for the Salt Lake Community College. <laughs> and so we, we started to have that fun conversation inside of the family. And, um, and then I joined the Air Force. I joined the Air National Guard um, to get GI Bill money so that I could be an elitist and go to the University of Utah. And, um, and you know. I didn't know that. I don't know if she said that last time. Interesting. I'm not sure if I did. Yeah, huh. So it, the fun part of this is that when you all, if you have siblings, you'll get it, that my older brother joins as an officer in the Air Force. I joined, you could not have joined at a lower level in the Air Force than I joined. I joined as an E1 enlisted Airman Basic. And so over the course of the years, um, you know, technically if I saw him in uniform, I was supposed to salute him. And let's just be sure that it's on record that that never happened. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to invite Mark as our next guest and hear his side yeah, of the story? He, it, would be, it would be great to have us both here because awesome. he's, he's more fun than me. <laughs> Really cool. So you're at the U. What do you decide to study? I'm guessing business. But. Yeah, I, I got an undergrad degree in finance at the U. I joined a fraternity. I um, worked pretty much full time, did the Air Force thing, and went to business school. So there's a theme here. In high school, you made the most of it. In college, you made the most of it. I mean, I, I say this for our kids and any, any other kids who are listening. I mean, it's... I love to see these patterns that start so young. You know, someone who gets up at four, if you're at work at 4.30, you're getting up as early early to drive and, and, and do that. Yeah. And then you go to college and again, you make the most of it. Um, I wonder if these are sort of predictors of what is about to happen in life. But did you feel that way? Did you feel like an ambitious, successful person at the time? I didn't feel successful. I didn't have anything. Yeah. Um, you know, was living paycheck to paycheck and, um, you know, GI Bill reimbursement to GI Bill reimbursement. And so I don't think there was a level of success, but there was a, maybe a concept of just maximizing, mm. you know, just, I, I really enjoyed being social. I really enjoyed school and work. Um, I actually liked working. So, you know, how do you fit it all in? How does the puzzle come together? Um, it, Usually sleep is what was sacrificed, but <laughs> that's okay. Really cool. Okay, so um, we all know the U is special. With all due respect to BYU, but you graduate from 
the great University of Utah, and what do you decide to do? Um, I was working for a bank through college. It was called the Associates First Capital Corporation, and I was doing commercial underwriting. So I was basically, if you apply for a, a loan, anything under a million dollars, I was underwriting the financial statements. So that was, I mean, again, just like these un, uh, behind the scenes blessings of working while I was in school, that practical application of taking a finance or accounting course, learning a financial statement, going to work, and then actually working on people's financial statements and watching it come together. So I really felt like that helped me digest what I was learning at school. But when I, when I graduated, the president of the bank offered me a job running a, a, a small part of a loan division. And so that was my career path. I was kind of set, I, you know, like all of us, I thought, hey, if I can just stay in this gig and based on the way the bank works, by the time I'm 30, you know, I should be making X and that means I can potentially buy a house worth Y and... You're such a Gen Xer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, that's what motivated Gen X, right? Because BMW 3 Series, what was, the, what was the show? I always forget the name. Well, was this well Top Gear, but Top Gun, but but there was a like Wall Street. Was it called Wall Street, where the guy drove the BMW 3 yeah. Series, and that was sort of epitomized Gen X. Yeah, it was, you aspired to uh, to make money and have a fancy car. Yeah, I think there was an underlying principle of trying to make my parents, parents proud, proud too, and you know there was that balance of stability and being successful, and you know getting out of the shackles of day to day life. Um, and then the kind of the pivotal moment was I, I graduated from school and I guess it was May of 99 and within six months of that being my plan, I had an opportunity to go to work for a dot-com company. It was a software startup called ideaexchange.com and there were three people that I knew that were real professionals that um, had six very successful careers that were founding it. and they called and offered myself and one of my roommates to be the fifth and sixth employee here. Wow. And, but unfortunately, because they were a startup, they couldn't pay me. But my salary was half of what I was making at the bank. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I had to give them, I had to tell them on Monday, and this was a Thursday night. They gave you that long? Yeah, That's they gave great. me four days. We so should, We should stretch the time that we give people. <laughs> you know, maybe, not unlike many other stories, I just kind of decided to myself that on a values basis, I didn't believe in not giving at least two weeks notice, mm -hmm. but that on a risk basis, like when else would I not take, when I, would I be able to take a leap like that? So I did. I went into the president of the bank on Monday morning and said, hey, oh, man. here's the circumstance. What, what would you do? And he was amazing. His name was Brian Witham. And he said, if I was you, I'd pack up your shit and be out of here by five o'clock today and take that job. And if it doesn't work, call me back. He's like, but I was 20, you know, one once as well and take a flyer. So he gave me some security around taking it, gave me some comfort around leaving with like three hours notice. He'd obviously built a great deal of credibility with, with him. Yeah, yeah, he was, he was a good, he was a good advocate of mine, mm -hmm. so that was helpful. And then that, w that turned out to be one of the best kind of learning experiences in my life. I spent two years um, 
basically outlining how our software was going to work, in, which was really a web platform. And then I ended up living in Florida and New York City for a while, working with the development firms that we hired to get our, our website launched. And then I worked for a very eccentric group of people. So, you know, our brand launch was our logo on the side of the Empire State Building on a particular Friday night. And so we were burning, yeah, I don't know, like a million five a month in all of this hot. Oh, the good old days. And, uh, <laughs> and I think our revenue at the time was like 30,000. So on a 30 million raise, y'all can start doing the math for yourself here that the flame out was coming quick. And, um, and so I had a variety of roles there, but, um, but I really enjoyed the kind of the software and the forward looking product side of it. And, um, at the tail end, you know, it ended up going out of business and. Now, as you're describing the story, I'm thinking, how does a guy go from doing finance at a bank to defining a web product? Mostly because the people that founded the company were old mm. and something like a and they about this right idea of a website to them was like you know that was a foreign language <laughs> and so we just you know rolled up our sleeves and that's got awesome. after it that's awesome so it, it literally flamed out shut down literally flamed out and, shut and down what with the bust of oh so, somebody lost you know 38 million dollars is wow. i think what they raised from one person one person. single individual that they knew um and you know it, there's a lot of that was market timing so you know when we started it was how fast can you grow what's your brand are you first to market how many customers do you have on your website yeah. when everything started to flame out it was how much money are you making because the market had flipped and everyone knows the dot-com bubble burst and blah 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 but that transition for me was still um you know my buddies were all knocking off at two o'clock and and hitting a pub in sugar house and i just i couldn't do it i was still trying to find a way to maximize the sale of the assets or whatever and that ultimately was my transition that was my opportunity um one of the founders of that company was really close friends with Vern, who was the partner of mine in Spring Mobile. And Vern was going to buy a mobile phone company and he was looking for somebody to come, you know, do the due diligence and then help him run it. And he called his friend and said, hey, I'm looking for, I need somebody to come help me do this. And his friend said, I've got this kid, man, he's 24. You're going to think I'm nuts, but come work with him for a week. And then they kind of traded me like a baseball player over three martinis or something at lunch. I don't, I don't really know how it went down, but um, I told him like the things that I was looking for. And I think that the, the guys that I, wa I worked for before wanted to make sure that I was well taken care of going into this next deal because it didn't work the way it was supposed to. So they set me up well and, and then we were off to the races. And they picked you, not the guys knocking off at uh, two. Yeah, there's, there's, I guess there's versions of the story. If you talk to those guys knocking off, they'd probably tell a different one, but, but I'll stay pretty founded on the fact that <laughs> hard work paid off. So please tell us that story because that story is amazing with Spring Mobile. Yeah, I, Spring Mobile, six mall kiosks, 
when you walk by people saying, hey, you want a phone? We've all walked around them, hidden from them. <laughs> so for the first year, I hate, I mean, I absolutely hated our business. I was embarrassed by it. Um, didn't really want to tell people what I was up to. Um, I was not a retailer by trade. Um, I'd never led, you know, teams of people like that. So you're working on compensation systems, hiring routines, opening procedures. Um, but I think after, after about a year, I finally looked at our partners and literally said to them, would you buy anything from one of our stores? And both of them said, no. And I said, well, if we're going to do this, then let's, let's do it. Let's either be in it or be out of it. And we kind of made a commitment at that time. We sat down and did kind of your basic business playbook. We came up with a vision and a mission and a set of shared values. And we came up with a pledge for the organization that we would all say together on a daily basis. And it became very kind of human and customer service centric and really about creating a company that could provide opportunities for people who worked in retail and do it differently than other retailers were doing it. And I started to get really passionate about it. It was never for me about the mobile phone thing. It was really about now we could get out into communities where it is hard for people who are uneducated and maybe this tie back even to my own family as to like, if you go to work in one of these environments, is it awesome? Do you go home a better mom or dad? Do you have great benefits? Can you progress your career? Do you learn something? Do you love what you do? And if we could go impact all of these small towns in America with a business like that, it'd be damn fun. Um, and so, cool. you know, that's where the flywheel started and the passion started to set in. And we were greatly benefited too, you know, make no mistake here, that the mobile phone penetration rate in the US at the time we started was like 41%. So as great as I make that passion sound, we, were, we, we had a big tailwind of a market that was you know, on the climb and that helped us a lot. We made a lot of mistakes, so. So you go from, initially you started with kiosks in malls, Crossroads Mall, I remember there was one there. Yeah, yeah. At what point do you transition to physical stores and, and, and real scale? We started, you know, within kind of 24 months, wow. transitioning to full retail stores. Wow. Again, that was more about what I felt like the, what the proper work environment. Who the hell wanted to work in a kiosk? Mm. And, um, and then also the right environment for customers. When you buy a mobile phone, you're sharing your, your address, your social security information, they run credit. So you're out in the middle of the mall, like shuffling, <laughs> just didn't make sense to us. So we started that in 2003 and um, it didn't, I mean, it didn't take long for the singulars of the world to pick up on wanting to have a good thoughtful distribution partner. And then ultimately AT&T bought them. And, um, you know, we, we grew at a pretty slow, slow clip the first few years that adage, nail it before you scale it. So it was, six, then 11, then kind of 18 retail stores. And then it went like 30, and then it went 60, 90, 120. We really started to make some jumps. And some of that had to do with, with capital. So when you get into these, uh, these fun capital conversations, we never took outside money in Spring Mobile. Hmm. It was started with a $400,000 hard money loan on Vern's piece of property in Heber 
Wow. So he borrowed money at 12% from somebody, loaned it to our company at 19%, and, um, and then uh, basically gave me an equity kicker when we, would, when we paid it off. So we paid it off in the first year, and then after that, we used, I used everything, factoring, accounts receivable financing, lockbox financing. I did everything I possibly could to preserve the, uh, wow. the equity structure of the, of the company until we could get traditional financing you know, through senior debt at a local bank. Wow. Um, so we never took private equity or any of those things. Amazing, well. the whole way through. The whole way through. Incredible. Uh, because inventory is really expensive in your business. Inventory is expensive. Building retail stores is expensive. Mm -hmm. You know, so to, to get one off the ground, load it full of inventory, hire people, train them. It was capital intensive at the beginning. Um, but there's things you can do with your cash conversion cycle and managing your operations that like shorten that up. But it was a, it was a big part of what I think constrained us at the beginning, ultimately benefited us because we got much better at operating and allowed us to scale faster later. And what's the culmination of that amazing story, Jason? <sighs> well, we, we, we kicked off another one along the way called Simply Mac. So we had Spring Mobile, which did mobile phone retailing for AT&T. Then we kicked off another one, Simply Mac, which was you know an Apple retailer. Um, and we had two parallels. We decided to sell Simply Mac in 2012. So we hired an investment bank. They took it to market GameStop called um, and were, they were interested in that business and um, I thought GameStop was a regional retailer. I didn't realize they were $9 billion in revenue and 6,000 stores in 16 countries. So once I knew that, I thought, well, who are they sending? And then our banker said, it's the uh, chairman of the board and the CEO. And I thought, maybe we'll take that lunch. <laughs> <laughs> so they flew out here and ended up buying S Simply Mac and I sat on the board with them for a year. And during that year, they, uh, they wooed us to buy Spring Mobile. So they bought the mobile business a year later. Um, so both of those exited to a publicly traded company. Amazing, in 12 and 13. In 12, uh, 12 and 13, yeah. Amazing. So you go from a tiny startup to uh, a pretty substantial business to being acquired by a publicly traded company and being an executive and on the board there. What, what was that moment like? Um, you know, it was a touch of, uh, I think, a, I mean, some shock, some probably lack of acceptance on my part. Um, we hid from it for, for a little while. So my, my mode when that all happened was um, whatever came off the table, just give it to somebody else. and back to maybe the pattern here is just go to work. Um, so I went to work for GameStop and when we sold the company to them, it was roughly, you know, $100 million in revenue and 130, 140 retail stores. Over the next four or five years, we bought 36 companies and had 1,400 retail stores. So they, they really scaled these platforms that we had and it worked out tremendously for them. And that was a really fun experience because back to what motivated me at the beginning, I mean, there were people that we hired for $30,000 in 2003 that were making a quarter of a million dollars a year and had big jobs, you know, by the time this thing was over. Um, and are still, so many of them are still there, which is cool. What's the time frame here from 2003 to 
I guess that's 10 years to exit. It was 2001 to 2013 so for 12, the 12 years for the mobile business, and then seven for the Mac business. Mm. And then I hung in there until 2019 with with GameStop. Had an untimely departure there, obviously with their last run. Shit, should have stayed, but. <laughs> 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 But there's, you know, there's some, there's some other personal things that happen along the way. And, you know, you get into these larger corporate environments and earnings calls and hitting quarterly numbers. And I don't know, I just, it started to lose its soul for me. It wasn't really what I set out to do. Um, so you know, it was my time you, to leave. You made it a long time, though. You made it a long time in, in a big publicly traded company. It's not like you... Uh, Put in a year or two and then checked out, right? No, it was, it was, I was probably there, I guess it was close to six years that I stayed in that seat. To yeah. be honest, I tried to leave two years before that mm -hmm. and um, the CEO got really sick and then they asked me to stick around for a while and I did. And Anyway, six years is a long run in those seats. Oh, and yeah. oh yeah. So I now, I remember the time that you're talking about. I remember what you were like, and I remember the moment you were about to talk about. So please switch to the personal side for a second and talk about what happened to sort of trigger 2019. Okay, perfect. I, um, first of all, I, I haven't said this, but I'm married. My gorgeous wife, Mary, of 19 years. I have two daughters, Annabelle's 13 and Madeline is six. And they're, you know, they're just feisty little, little kids that act like their mom. Um, and, uh, but on the journey, 2012, I was feeling pretty good at that time. We were getting ready to sell Simply Mac. We were within 30 days of selling it, actually. Um, or we had just taken it to the market, actually. And anyway, I had some health issues. I took my daughter to a movie, had a massive seizure during the movie, um, had a blood vessel malformation in my brain that led me to have a craniotomy. So I had a craniotomy on September 17th of 2012, and we sold Simply Mac on October 30th of 2012. Um, and, you know, that was, you know, one of those moments, I think everyone would tell a similar story um, where you're, you start to put things in perspective. Um, the night before brain surgery, I didn't know what to expect, um, although they, they give you some information. I don't think you're ever fully prepared. And, you know, you go downstairs and I've got a three-year-old at the time and I want to address my family. My parents didn't live here. They were in Colorado at the time. So I'm figuring out like, what am I going to send as a message to everybody that's a touch uplifting? How do, what do I want to say to my daughter the night before I go in at 7 a.m. and get my head cracked open? And, you know, I made several notes to myself then around, you know, what priorities I should have and you would imagine during that whole stretch I worked a ton you know don't let me fool anyone that I was a 6 a.m. in the morning to midnight several nights a week um, and I could because I didn't really have kids and my Annabelle was only three at the time but before that you know I had several years where I could just work and so I was trying to reframe that and I think that ultimately led not to the sale of Simply Mac that was already in, in motion, but then to the sale of Spring Mobile mm. when GameStop really was interested in it because that was 
you know, for our family, that was a life-changing event that allowed us to, you know, have some financial freedom and allowed me to not ever have to worry about my family. And that was, a, you know, within a year of having a pretty serious health issue and not knowing if that was going to continue or not. Um, that also framed, you know, a later conversation, which is in 2019 when I left GameStop, you get to a point in an organization like that where you you either need to move to the headquarters and go up the chain and do your best to either participate or lead the company or you you step out and i had a great opportunity to go to dallas a great opportunity to move my family and um but at that moment in my life it was what am i doing I'm going to go to Dallas. I'm going to work for a publicly traded company. I'm going to sit on their executive team. I'm going to work 100 hours a week. I'm going to move my family away from my kids, away from their cousins and their grandparents and their aunts and uncles. And for what? So at that moment, I just opted out. I chickened out, Mr. Sam. No, no, it's, <laughs> excuse me. I, I, first, I can't believe that was 2012. That it seems so much more recent than that, but it was 2012. Yeah, I still remember Jason coming back. Drew, you remember? He was he was he was kind of like an Amy at the gym. Yes, Amy. Like he always would finish first, have the highest weight, be what Mike would do. Yeah. And he has this really serious surgery, and you come back as if nothing had happened, and immediately just jumps back in. But you did seem changed after that. You, you did see more self-conscious. Yeah, I mean, <coughs> it's not, not living with reckless abandon or feeling invincible or, you know, there's, I guess there was an edge there that was taken off, probably for the better. But I do appreciate Drew picking me up two minutes before CrossFit every day. <laughs> um. So 2019 is when you pseudo-retired. Yep. Pseudo-retired. And I think it would be natural to ask, can a guy this ambitious last for very long? What was on your mind? Did you think you were going to retire? Did you think it was going to last a long time? Was your plan to give yourself some time to think and then figure it out? That was the plan. The plan was unplug from everything. Yeah. So busy social life, busy family life, busy work life. So I wanted off all boards and that was our, Mary and I were moving to France. So we spent really the rest of that year getting visas, finding lodging, getting the kids into school and then moving. And the whole plan was for the kids to go to school every day and for Mary and I to slug a bottle of rosé or beautiful French Sancerre and like work on our next five to 10 year life plan. And so, you know, that it worked really well for the first six weeks or eight weeks that we were there. Um, you know, we had adjusted, the kids were in school, the wine was fabulous. And, but we, just as we started working on our, our life plan, COVID hit. And then, you know, there, there was that overhang of, of COVID. So I don't know that we, and we still haven't really fully flushed that part of it out. And before I turn it over to the team, because I think that's where we left the story last time, um, maybe you could just give us a little bit of a hint about you know, what you do two hours a day. 
So I, I, I think I may have mentioned yeah. in the past that I started a company while, uh, while we were in France that is really just an incorporation of, of the work that we're doing as a, as a me personally and then as a family, and it's called Three Park, and Three Park stands for Trailer Park, Rose Park, Park City, which are the three parks that I've lived in on the journey. It's a good representation for me every time I tell somebody my email is jason at threepark.com. I kind of smile about the whole thing. I think it's funny. Um, but Three Park, we, I've spent my time in a couple of places. So I've, I'm on the board of one software company. I advise another software company. And then um, we've made a couple of small angel investments. And then we recently bought a company back that we once owned and sold to private equity. Um, and we're going to try to you know, tran transition that into you know, a consumer product brand. And, and that's retirement. That's retirement. That's what I'm doing to, to, to retire at the moment. <laughs> Um, I'm sure there will be a few questions on that, but I want to make sure the team gets an opportunity to ask some questions. So sure. um, let me turn it over to you guys and who wants to ask the first question? I suspect it will be Drew. I think the, the person that you are in, to those who know you, I'm wondering how all of those years in corporate, you, that didn't seem to change you. Like you. It struck me that you spoke about, you know, after a year at this company, you were the one that told them, hey, this is not what we should be about. How, what gave, gives you the confidence to do that in a corporate environment? I'm not really sure how at the moment. I would just share an experience that when I went to work for a Fortune 200 publicly traded company, I assumed that the people that were running that company in very senior positions knew everything and would just know what was best. And I think that the reality for everyone is that if you're competent in what you do, um, you have a voice and there's a lot of people who are in roles that shouldn't be in them and or they don't know what they're doing, they're figuring it out along the way too. And so I've just kind of anchored around um, wherever I am trying to make a difference and not being afraid to say what's on my mind in a way that's not harmful to people but is hopefully betters the outcome. And I don't know, I don't know where I gained the confidence to do that, but would just encourage everyone to do it because I find often that a lot of people don't necessarily understand or don't feel like something's totally accurate and they don't say anything. And they just assume that whoever's above them or around them does know. And then I find more often than not that they don't know either. And this is where, you know, surprises happen that are usually not good. Sounds like for the companies that you were, were brought into, not GameStop, but they, they were solid folks and maybe there wasn't a lot of politics, but how did you avoid, or did you play the politics game and, and, or how did you avoid the politics um, to rise up you know, 
People, well, that's, that's a good question. I had a partnership uh, that lasted for a long, long time. I had three partners in, in Spring Mobile, Simply Mac, and there was one other company in there called Gadget Guard. We had the same equity cap table the entire time. And, um, you know, I think a, a reasonably good story would be that um, on, on the sale of our Spring Mobile business, there was a there was a price if Jason comes along with GameStop and there was a price if Jason exits and does not come along. Mm -hmm. And I had several people tell me that I should negotiate a different mm. portion of that because of how valuable I was with my partners. Mm. My response is, as you guys might imagine, for the people who worked so hard and gave me my very first opportunity at the at the third, 11th hour, you want me to go renegotiate our deal? Not a chance, right? And so I think a lot of times people get in their own way and because they get selfish along the way and you start counting like how much you're doing. This happens in all relationships, by the way. If you start keeping score instead of just figuring out like, what can I bring to this relationship instead of what can I take from it? And I've really, I've really approached most of my business relationships that way. What am I bringing? And then not being afraid to call somebody else out if, uh, if I feel like they're selfish and, and on the take. Um, partnerships are very difficult, so don't, please don't let me make it sound like we just sat around and ate cake. Yeah, it was not like that. Um, but for the most part, you know, you surround yourself with people with common values and if if you approach these things selflessly, then they usually work out. I have a question. So, like sharing your ideas with people in a, a higher rank, I suppose, or level than you, takes a lot of gumption, right? It takes it takes courage. Um, how do you deal with the pushback from? How did you deal? I suppose, or what would you advise? People? Yeah. Yeah. I, and I've learned this over time. I, I would say that when I was younger, I did a lot of it through um, through kind of dominating, like overly selling, convincing. Um, I, as I think I've gotten better at it, one of my favorite um, transition statements with somebody in something, a conversation like that is, are you trying to be right or do what's right? And if you want to have a conversation about what is right, then let's have that conversation. If you're just trying to be right, then let's at least acknowledge that you're just trying to be right. And usually that's a grounding mechanism for other people to just be like, okay, wait a minute. And some people can handle that level of candor. I know Basam is big on candid feedback. Um, but oftentimes you just find people just trying to be right all the time. We find that all over the world we're in our echo chambers whether it's politically socially whatever it is and um i try to just re-anchor those conversations around hey let's just have a conversation around what is right oftentimes you can get consensus pretty easily on what is right
Christy, I want to make sure if you have a question, you get to ask it. Yeah, so A, I'm probably going to make a t-shirt at that last statement, so that's pretty awesome. Thank you for that. I was curious, was Steve Bain your partner at Stream Mobile, or? Steve was my partner at Simply Mac. Hmm. Yeah, so I worked with him at Cellular One, good dude, so. Very good. Great individual. Um, so I think for me what, uh, maybe it's just you try to reflect yourself, uh, but you had this financial job like you were well respected by the president and you took this risk um i, I think that that to me i always am like what motivates people so i also you used to say i have an entrepreneurial spirit but i'm not an entrepreneur because i risk it first so i think that as i was listening to you talk it kind of snowballed but um you know what is the decision making process like was that a painful decision for you was lots of thought process behind it or it just felt right was it a gut instinct or a methodical like what am I doing no I would probably align with you as much as I'm an entrepreneur I'm pretty risk averse in the sense that um, that like I I'm not just a put all the chips on the table kind of entrepreneur I think entrepreneurs at times get classified as people who have to just be the ultimate risk taker and I don't know I don't know that that I believe in that um, by the way my partner in spring mobile Vern has made and lost all of his money three times in his life. And I mean, lost everything. And I'm not that kind of an entrepreneur. <laughs> so uh, I think it's okay to be an entrepreneur and not like lose your house um, and, and be practical about that. And in that decision around idea exchange, um, I had you know, no family so that I didn't have to have a family consideration, but probably one of the biggest waiting factors was the CFO, or I'm sorry, the president of Bank One Utah uh, resigned his position as president of the bank to become the CFO of this company. And I, I just thought to myself, if, if he's willing to cash in a president of a bank job to come be the CFO, why am I not willing to take a similar risk? And so basically I, I, I followed, I was a sheep. That's what I'm telling you. <laughs> Um, well, I love, you know, I love the whole Main Street, take it to Wall Street thing. I'm, I'm just, you got the whole, I'm a street kid from the wrong side of the track. So I love, I love that some hedge funds got squoze. And, you know, behind the scenes, when we would do a GameStop earnings call, the CEO, the former CEO was one of the top five most influential people in my life. And he was a Costa Rican immigrant. He spoke five languages and he was just a tremendous human being. He ended up dying of brain cancer. And, but on that journey, I learned a ton from him. We would go into the whiteboard before the earnings call and every one of us would pick the, sh the, the share price, the opening share price the next morning. Mm. And Paul always uh, would pick a number that was like $10 higher than everyone else. But it didn't matter what happened because there was such a short squeeze on the stock that if we beat earnings, shares would go down. If you'd miss earnings, shares would go up. I mean, the, the market really acted inversely to what you would think the performance was, was of a publicly traded company. And it was very hard to move that just based off of the fact that so many people were squeezing and shorting the stock for the long haul. So um, I, you know, 
while I had zero equitable interest, no zero shares of GameStop, I celebrated the fact that, you know, there was a there was a movement here. And there are several other publicly traded companies that fall into this, the same issue of, you know, they have a certain number of shares outstanding and those shares get purchased and shorted and it's tough for those, those leaders of those companies to build value for the, the stockholders. We could go on for another hour, but I'm realizing that there are probably appointments that are about to start in the next few minutes. So I will ask you one, cl the closing, the obvious closing question what would you tell a 20-year-old? A what is the piece of advice you'd tell a 20-year-old in the year 2021? Ooh. What, I would, <laughs> what I would tell a 20-year-old nowadays? Mm -hmm. um, well, there's probably two things. This is, I'm gonna go old school on people now, but um, best effort always is not something that I see today out of uh, some of the workforce. And it doesn't have to be a 20 year old, it can be 30, 35, 40, but I just don't see that level of grit and hard work and kind of determination to be individually successful. Mm -hmm. and, and I wish that for people. I think that when you're really good at something, regardless of what it is, I don't give a shit if you're a baker, a janitor, if you're great at whatever you do, there's a sense of like personal satisfaction that comes from it. And I would like for people to want that for themselves enough to work hard for it. Mm. And I don't necessarily see people like taking ownership of, I'm gonna work hard to make sure I'm really good at something I wanna be good at. So that would probably be the one piece of advice I'd give them. That's great. Jason, thank you so much for making time today. Thanks for um, having me. We can't wait to, to hear the next step in the journey on the next, uh, next time we host you. Yeah. So thanks a lot for your time. You betcha. Thanks everyone. <laughs> Thank you.